Tonight will be the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. Take your Bible, turn there. I'll have you stand in just a few moments. I think most of us are familiar with the context now, so I won't spend a lot of time rehearsing that. So let's just begin our reading in verse number 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens, and layeth the foundations of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. This is a very encompassing resume of God. It says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. In that day, a repeated refrain, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness, and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord host their God. And in that day I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in the sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about, on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. And in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God, and the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, of supplications. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son." And shall, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadarim in the valley of Medigo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, and the family of Shimeel apart, and, the wives, and their wives apart, and all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Our Holy Father, I pray the next few moments as we look into this, well, this ancient text that was inspired by you to be an encouragement, Lord, to a specific group of people, that, Lord, we might understand the context, and then, Lord, broaden your intent to make application for our own lives. So I ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. I appreciate that. Zechariah chapter 12 brings us to uh, the final section of this prophetic book. It's really been divided into three parts. Um, a, a set of, uh, a section of Zechariah receiving dreams and having interpretation up to an angel. Uh, a brief section of where a sign act kind of a living illustration was acted out. And now this last part is oracles or a special word, a message from God uh, to the people via this prophet. God has spoken now for some time through Zechariah to what we have rehearsed over and over, this post-exile community. 
Uh, the Jews had re returned home from Babylon, now under the rule of Persia. Uh, Seventy years have been completed for their judgment. They've, they've made their way back. This is really the first wave of people who've returned under the guidance of Zerubbabel and Joshua, one descendant of Aaron and one descendant of, of David. And, and they've been commissioned this great overwhelming task to rebuild the temple. And they've given themselves that to the last few years. And now other Jews are returning, not just from Babylon, uh, but also from you know, the outer regions of Samaria and, and through the scattered countryside after they had been dispersed by the Babylonians. Zechariah wrote um, broadly to offer hope uh, and encouragement to these post-exile uh, Jews, to help them have the faith, the strength to rebuild Jerusalem after its decimation. Um, God was trying to get them beyond present circumstances to a brighter future. Times for these people were not uh, easy. Their task in rebuilding the temple in the face of adversity, and, and just in terms of scope and scale, was overwhelming. Um, and I, I, as we have rehearsed, the people uh, had numbers of temptations to stop the work and really to give themselves just to life and, and more worldly pursuits. Their temptations including, included re-engaging in idolatry. Israel was forever struggling with not giving themselves to idolatry. It, it may seem hard to us in the context that we understand the way they worship Baal. And, and remember they did so because they thought there was probably agricultural gain or economic gain in doing so. Uh, they had been taught through the history of Canaan that if you, you know, paid homage to Baal, you know, that, that, that he was the god of agriculture, that you could be blessed that way. It was just a temptation. You know, it might be the way that we would give ourselves too much to work or too much to the economy or give too much attention to our bank account or, or you know, too much time to, you know, securing our economic future versus investing in the kingdom of God. It was just a, a plague of their heart. They were tempted to give themselves to temporal pleasures and pursuits. You know, when I say that, it can sound wicked, but, you know, we, we really can be tempted by the same things. You know, hedonism has many forms. And it may not all be terribly wicked. Um, I have hobby horses, you know, but, um, you know, we can be tempted to give too much time to social media. You know, the way we give ourselves to that is for hedonistic pleasure. You know, we scroll through TikTok, we go through all that stuff, reels, whatever else, for the whole point of being entertained. You know, it's, it's probably a little bit all moral and it's um, without thinking, you know, it's mindless, but it's, you get the idea. We wouldn't assign it to great wickedness, but it's worldly. It's, it's not really giving attention to the things of God. And we can get lost in a thousand pleasures, both benign perhaps, and, and I suppose evil and wicked, but it's a constant temptation to us to watch the TV, to give too much time to entertainment. You get the idea. Well, it was to them as well. And then there was a temptation to disengage from that which is difficult and demanding. These people were assigned the task of taking this pile of rubble, both Temple and Jerusalem, and rebuilding it. You know, it's hard for us to understand the magnitude that's involved here of simply moving a rock. 
I mean, we're talking about something gargantuan and huge and big with, with minus, you know, technology. And this was just sheer labor in the sun for years unending. And, and they were to give themselves to that ahead of the task of rebuilding their homes and, and simply, uh, you know, accommodating their daily needs in the way they, they maybe wanted to. And it would be easy to understand. So, I mean, I've been doing this for 18 months and I'm still facing opposition. And you know what? I'm taking I'm taking Sunday off. You with me? It's just easy sometimes to give ourselves to the temptation of this commitment's just too big. Going to church every Sunday is too much. Coming back on Sunday night and Wednesday night is too much. I preach to the choir, so it's not hard for you all, but you get the idea of giving every month or laboring for the Lord. And they were just humans in this regard, and that was a temptation. Um, but Zechariah, of course, preached to them to overcome these things. And, 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 you know, these things are temptations to us today as well. You and I still, as I've already mentioned, struggle to maybe keep God as the first priority in our life. Hedonism in its various forms is still a temptation for us. And being committed over the course of a lifetime of the entirety of our Christian journey is ever a challenge, isn't it? So many things can discourage us. So many things can get off, 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 off task. It's often easier to be a part-time Christian, both in terms of commitment and, and ethos, you know, just ethics. And so Zechariah's words and message continue to have relevance to us today as it did to the people of that day. Now, many commentators des describe Zechariah 12 through 14 to the end as an apocalyptic portion of Scripture. And that's, we're no stranger to that term now, having studied the book of Revelation, meaning to do with this portion of time or scripture had to do with maybe perhaps the eschatological calendar of God, how end time would unfold. And, it, and I hate, that's the wrong phrase, unfold, because we think chronologically some events that might happen in the future is really the, the idea of, of writing in an apocalyptic style. This book was written, by that I mean, this book was written to a contemporary audience in their day of difficulty to endure and have courage by giving them a glimpse of a future day that would be better, better and more ideal. Okay? You follow what I'm saying there? So, what Zachariah is doing in a really dumbed down way is, you know, like maybe one of our children going through a hard time and we would say to them, hey, it won't always be like this. Okay? Anybody offered that kind of encouragement before? Hey, it won't always be like this. You won't always be, you won't always be this poor. You won't always have these struggles. You won't always do this. Yeah, in time, you just, you be faithful and, and you, you work your way through this. And in time, it'll be a better day. In our family, um, I'm known for a number of mantras and phrases. And not all of them hyper-intelligent or super whatever. But one of the things that my kids have heard me say I don't know how many times in the midst of some difficulty I, I say these words, um, it's going to work out. They've literally heard it hundreds of times. It's going to work out, and it's going to be okay. Now, there was probably a day when they heard those words to go, yeah, yeah, whatever. But now as adults, see, they've lived through some of those hard times, and they've seen that it's been true. Now, when I say that, I don't mean, hey, tomorrow I'm going to be rosy. I mean this that in God's big plan, you're going to be okay. And it's, it's, it's going to work out. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, and you have some more difficult things to go through. But you know what? Trust the Lord. It's going to work out. It's going to be okay. In a nutshell, that's what Zachariah is saying to this audience who's going through hard times. It's difficult, I know, but it's going to work out. 
and it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You see, it's easy for us, it's easy for me, it's easy for you to focus all of our emotional energy on what's wrong right now. You know, we, we live so microscopically. You know, all I see, like we forget the past, we have no vision of the future, and all I can see right now is that something's wrong. You know, my air conditioner broke, um, my car has a flat tire, um, you know, I don't have money this, this money this week. And it's like we, we excuse the whole larger picture. We can be very, very myopic in our thinking. And, 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 and so we, we just see that. But, but here God has been using Zechariah to help these people have a larger vision of life and realize that their present trials are just a chapter in a much larger story and that it ends in triumph. And so live that way today, understanding that. Zechariah was trying to instill a sincere expectation that one day God Himself would break through into human history and experience and transform their circumstances into a more desirable reality. Now, that's a mouthful, but he's, he's saying a better day's coming. You know, a better day's coming, and you need to believe that. So, again, you know, he's saying don't give up. Again, to just sim to simplify things, it's, it's like, you know, you and I get that. We get that. You know, we go to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because we're sort of expecting a paycheck at the end of the week or at the end of the month. So, we, 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 we make our way through it. Many of us have worked our way through difficult relational issues with people. You know, why do we do that? Because we knew that it was worth it. We knew that a better day would come. Resolving the issues was, was worth the effort because something, there, there, was a, there was a reward at the end. We've done this at work. We, we, you get the idea. When you and I patiently work through things as a Christian, well, then things, they work out. And it'll be okay in time. So tonight we take a, a, a look now at the text. Um, let's look to find these truths that I've rehearsed and others in the Word of God here. So in verse 1 of chapter 12, the text begins by placing God, just given all that I've said, the text begins by placing God above their circumstances, circumstances in an incredible way. Okay, so here they are. They're struggling to rebuild the temple give themselves the wrong things. And so, all of a sudden, Zechariah says, just, just understand that God is big. And, and He's huge here. Um, he starts with this by saying, we're talking about the God that stretched forth the heavens, or He created the cosmos. He's the creator of the world, the earth, and He gave you life. He, he made you an eternal being. Is that God who is sovereign? Is that God who rules? And is that God having that resume and it being that, having that identity, He is the one overseeing your present circumstances. So when He says to you, a better day is coming, you ought to believe it. You ought to believe it. That's the idea of verse number one, is that He's great big, He's beyond circumstances, and so we ought to have an expectation and hope based on who He is. That a day would come when God would make, in the text, Jerusalem one day, and God's people, here's his, his, what He says is going to happen, I'm going to make you an indomitable force. Right now you feel like you're hanging on. You feel like things are just by a thread. 
and, 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 and we don't have any money and our supplies are running low and the building still has to be finished and we have all these things we want to do. And God's saying, you, you just keep being a part of the plan and work of God and a future day is coming where this city that you're working on today will be an indomitable force. You feel afraid today, but one day, a day is coming when Jerusalem will never ever fear again that I will inhabit that place. I will be there and, and I will fight for them. And so he begins to talk about that day. And over and over the text, I, I, I tried to emphasize it, in that day, in that day, a day is coming. You labor, you work now because in that day, in a future day, hey, a better ideal future is coming for the nation and the people of God in Israel. And he says, there's some things that you're going to be like one day. You don't feel like this way today. You maybe feel like a fence is broken down. But a day is coming where he says, you're going to be like a cup of trembling. Okay, now th these are all ancient phrases that quickly read. We may not, may not resonate with us. But the idea here is this. He's saying one day you're going to be like, um, you're going to be like a strong drink. You're going to be like a, a, um, a very strong cup of wine. And then those who drink it, well, they're going to tremble. They're going to stumble. They're going to become intoxicated. In other words, they're, they're not going to have the ability that they would mind as facing you. Do you get it? We don't think about, you know, alcohol that way. But what he's saying is you're like a strong cup. Like these people are going to, they're going to sip you and you're going to wham them. You're, you're going to overwhelm them. You're going to, you're going to throw them off balance. Um, the idea here is a strong wine intox, intoxicating and making someone incapacitated. God's people, in other words, in a way we'd say it, God's people are going to be such a potent force, they're going to make those who partake of them stagger and tremble. You're going to be like that. You're going to be like a rock, and not just a dangerous, not just a rock, but a dangerous rock in these ensuing verses. And he says, those who grab the rock, well, it's going to be like a knife or, or razor blades. It is going to cut them and dash them in pieces. Right now, you, you may not feel very powerful, but you're going, to, you're going to incapacitate people. And if they grab a hold of you and mess with you, it's going to shred them to pieces in verse number three. You're going to be like that dangerous stone. And in that day, verse number four, he says, when, when these nations are gathered around you, then I will smite their horses and I will smite their riders with confusion and madness. He says, he's basically saying, God, I will personally oversee Jerusalem's victory, the nations around you, which just speaks of a day when all the nations will be around Jerusalem uh, coming against them in a siege or at war. And in that day when they're all gathered around you, I'm going to smite them with blindness. I'm going to smite them with confusion. I'm going to smite them with madness. And, and they're not going to understand <laughs> They're not going to understand what's happening to them. They're going to be confused. Like what in the world? They're so outnumbered. We've got them. And all of a sudden they grab a hold of you. And now we're incapacitated. They're being cut to shreds. Um, uh, and, and, and all of a sudden now we're, we're just in utter disarray. And that's going to be the understanding of the, of the nations around them. But in verse 5, in contrast with that, the people of that future day, they're going to understand what's happening. Verse 5, and in that day, they're going to get it finally. Wait, it's God who's fighting for us. It's God who's doing all this. 
They're going to understand it's not by their might, not by their power, but this is the Spirit of the Lord. This is God acting on Israel's behalf in a very supernatural way in that day. And then a metaphor is used that the leaders and people of Jerusalem, um, these are just all these vivid metaphors. Well, you're going to be like a fireplace consuming wood. In this case, you're the fireplace and the nations around you are wood. And you get the picture. In other words, they're going to come at you and you're just going to burn them up. I'm going to, I'm going to destroy them. So we have these four metaphors in a row of how you may feel feeble today, but I'm saying a day is going to come when, when, when people who come against you are just going to be consumed. Verses 7 8, he says, even the weakest among you are going to be like a warrior. They're going to be like David. You know, David is considered uh, Israel's mightiest warrior. And in that day, it's just going to be like even the old man was uh, someone who was a great, great ruler in Israel, a warrior. So verses 9 through 10 now are verses of contrast. And uh, so get the picture. It's offering, I'm in the middle of discouragement, difficulty. It's going to work out. It's going to be okay. Future days coming. Are you going to be like all this? And it's not just I'm going to defeat them. Now he offers an internal hope. Verses 9 through 10. He says, in that day, in the house of David, I'm going to bless you. And he basically says, I'm going to pour out two things to you, grace and supplications. The idea is I'm going to favor you. Just really simply pull it down. You're going to have my favor. There's going to come a day when I'm going to be with you. I'm going to fight for you. You as a nation, as a people, are going to know my grace and unmerited favor. You're going to know my blessing. In contrast to what's happening to these armies around you, conversely, on the inside, you're going to experience unimaginable blessing and grace. But your enemies are going to be destroyed. Okay. Now, all of this is meant to be encouraging. And it would encourage me. You know, it would encourage me. Now, verses 11 through 14 provide an additional insight into that day when this is going to happen. Not only will Israel experience victory over their enemies and be the recipients of national grace, but something's going to happen in that day as well. In this coming day, something's going to else happen in this country, in this nation, of my people. And what he says here in these verses is that one day there's going to be a national um, eye-opening, a national awareness, um, the realization that God, and it's God alone, is the one who's bringing this victory. And it's going to make you mourn. And I, I think we, we can understand that. Like all of a sudden you realize, I'm surrounded by a group of people who are going to destroy me. You know, just, if you just add up the tally sheet, they have more tanks and missiles or whatever else contemporarily than we do. And I was about to be destroyed, but God intervened and saved me. Wouldn't that make you thankful? Especially when you realize that the one who saved you was the one that once upon a time died for you? And you rejected it? And I'll get that again in a moment. In that day, the people of Israel are going to fall on their faces. And they're going to weep. And they're going to mourn. And, and, and the text goes into this 
um, like mentality. It's going to be like, um, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be like when a, a mother loses a child. It's going to be that kind of realization that something really important has been lost. It's going to be like the weeping when someone that you love has been taken away. There's this specific reference to this battle of Megiddo. And this is most likely referring to the national mourning that took place when King Josiah, who was greatly beloved, was killed in battle. Here was a king that brought them out of very dark times in the day of Jeremiah. And by the end of his, of his legacy, he was probably greatly loved. Not universally, but, but so. But when he died, there was an incredible mourning that took place. It's going to be like, it's going to be like the day that King Josiah died. Like when you lose a family member. He's saying this, it's going to be a great day of victory and a blessing, but it's also good. There's going to be, there's going to be something here that happens to your heart. And uh, you're, going to, you're not going to realize how, how manifest this is going to be. So verse 11, a great mourning. And then the extent of this mourning. In verse 12, in 12, 13, 14, he's trying to get the idea. That the specific names may have some relevance, but the idea is this, is uh, everyone's going to do it. Every family. You know, the language here is archaic in terms of um, this family and the husband, the wife, and the children, and this family, the husband, the wife, and the children. We don't talk that way. But the idea is this. Every family at Eastland Baptist Church is going to weep when they realize how good God's been to them. That's what I'm saying. Every family of Eastland Baptist Church is going to weep. The day's coming when you're going to realize how good, how good God has been to you. It's going to, it's, going to, it's going to occur to you. It's going to dawn on you. All your complaints, all your rejections, all your marginalization, it's going to dawn on you. Wait a second. The one who I have set aside, the one who I've lived my life with, with disregard for, he's the one who blessed me. He's the one who gave me health. He's the one who gave me a job. He's the one who died for my sins. And there's going to come when I finally get that. Well, if we ever finally got that, we would mourn today. Like they're going to mourn in that day. They're going to mourn for the one, going back to verse 10, whom they pierced. The language here is very specific in the Hebrew. The word pierced means wounded to death or wounded unto death. There's some commentators who, you know, not sure what's being referenced here. It's okay. I, I'm pretty certain what's being referenced here. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a vision of Christ that in that day the Jews as a nation are going to look to and realize that, wait, um, those Christians were right. And that our, our Messiah has already come and we pierced him. And, and, I mean, would that not make someone mourn when you realize that you hurt the one who is trying to help you, who saved you? That's what's happening here. It's, it's an it's intense moment. So the idea here is, of course, it's, it's apocalyptic. It's prophetic. It has the idea of some eschatology to it while having contemporary, uh, of course, encouragement in the moment. And you just to, to do reference to the text, there's this idea repeated here over and over this, in this text, like the nations are surrounding them, the nations are surrounding them. If we take that to mean something other than an event that occurred in history, which we, we wouldn't have reference of in, in this regard, all the nations of the world gathered around them, this is most likely a reference to the coming day 
of the Battle of Armageddon, when the nations of the world are literally gathered around in the Valley of Medigo, the one referenced here by Josiah, Valley of Armageddon and around Israel, they're poised to strike. The word in the Bible and the text uses siege. And then they're supernaturally delivered. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaches. That a day is coming when the Jewish nation will be regathered, which it now is. And that the armies of the world will gather around it. And, you know, a great army from the north and the east will come. And, and in a moment of despair, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back in the second advent and he will destroy these armies. And then that will then usher Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, along with us who are saved, into you know, a millennial kingdom. It's a great text, isn't it? It's a story that comes from history to offer hope to its then contemporary audience. Um, and it's important we understand the context. Such passages were inspired uh, by God for these prophets. Now listen, to communicate to communities in crisis to offer hope and exhortation to be faithful. That's why I told you back when I started Revelation and, and especially when I even started 1 Peter, I, I told you these texts are going to lack some color to us. Um, we don't need saving. At least we don't think we need saving. Not yet. We may feel that way soon. It's not until you're really in the fire that you really understand how much help you need. And I wish there was a way that we had the capacity, the ability to love and appreciate God and all His goodness right now without having to go through difficulty and hardness to realize what we had and what we lost. Most of us don't. It's a struggle. It's, it's human. But that's what it's intended for. That's why, first, that's why Peter wrote in 1 Second Peter the things that he did. He wrote in these churches scattered in Asia Minor who were going through an unbelievable persecution, he offered these encouragement of an eschatological future to give them hope in their present circumstances. John in the book of Revelation is writing to seven churches that all but one is really going through persecution. And he's, he's offering them hope. And that hope was meant to impact their, the way they live today. And so, you know, if we briefly make application, it's, it's no different. There's really not a difference in application. I can invent something, but it's not there. The application is this, is that the goodness of God should always lead His people to repentance. Honestly, in every circumstance. People get that in hard circumstances, but the goodness of God, if it can be realized and appreciated, should and always will lead you and I to repentance, change, to a greater alignment of living for Christ and being like Christ. In our text, we see God's salvation and deliverance come in, in really two ways, a political way, but also we, we comprehend here probably a spiritual way, obviously. We see God outpouring His grace to a people undeserving in that day, we see His promise to do them good. And then we see this response. Everybody mourns. Everyone finally gets it. Everyone sees it. In other words, when, they, when they've realized what God has done for them, there's a change in their hearts that manifests itself in the lives that they're living today. And there's just um, 
understanding of God's goodness. Throughout history, Israel had some bright moments, I suppose, where they maybe served God in an authentic and real way for a moment. But as a whole, this people, that nation, never deserved His mercy any more than we do. And it's just a great truth. You and I never have deserved the, the grace of God, and we never will, and neither did they. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by His mercy that He saved us. His unmerited grace. While we were yet sinners, God made the first move towards us. Right? In other words, here's the idea, is God's goodness always comes first. And it's always present. It's just ours to realize and appreciate. Yeah, I'm going I'm to simply echo the thought I have been rehearsing on Sunday mornings. Is that God's goodness today, right now, should incline us to serve Him today. In the text, yes, they go through hard times and they're delivered. But, but what God desires of us today is like for you and I right now to slow down. We may not see all our circumstances and all our enemies wiped out. <laughs> you know. But I can assure you of this, if you look for it, God's goodness and mercy are there. And if you could just focus on that, well, you, you might just repent. And by that I mean not just necessarily maybe mourn in the way they did, but to be sobered up enough to think, wow, God's been good to me. And it might just really alter um, the direction and the course of our life. The truth is God is good to us in so many ways. We do have more blessings than we can count tonight. Goodness, um, God's goodness is ever-present. His mercies are new every morning. And we need to learn to see it as the nation of Israel one day will finally see it. And here's the thing. As we see God's goodness, as the goodness of God leads us to repentance and mourning, here's the thing. That becomes the segue to more of God's blessings and more of God's goodness. And as we recognize that and thank Him for it, that leads to more of God's blessings and more of God's goodness. Until the day we get focused on the goodness and the blessings more than the one giving them. And then all of a sudden we circumnavigate what God intended and then we, we go, you know, into some form of exile. In other words, we just forfeit the blessings that could be ours if we simply allowed the goodness of God to continually lead us to repentance. God's response is see the bigger picture. God's response is know the future. Know, what, know where hard work, know where being faithful can take you. Not just through its own efforts, but, but by the blessing of God one day. That, this, this eschatological truth is true for us today too. In other words, we get to go into that millennial kingdom. We get to spend eternity with God. We get to see His deliverance. And the text points out two vantage points that we need to, to try to identify. A future better day. It's coming for those who work for it. For those who, 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 who honor God. And God wants us to give some effort to understand 
um, that the one who is pierced is the one that you and I often take for granted. We didn't play the roles. We don't, we didn't, we've not played the role the Jews did in offering up Christ to the Romans. But Christ was pierced for us. Correct? Is anyone here guilty of taking that for granted? I mean, you really just sort it in your brain. He was pierced for us. We didn't thrust the sword, but how often have we marginalized that truth and taken it for granted? See, they took it for granted. They dismissed it. I think in a lesser way, you know, we maybe are going to look back on the, way, on the one who was pierced for us and realize we should have given him a greater devotion. We should have gave him a greater commitment. You know, it's um, time, experience changes you. I see the world differently at 58 today than I saw it at 28. I see it differently than I saw it when I was 38. I see it differently than I was 48. Um, there's some things in my life I've taken for granted. And uh, I, can, I can bemoan it, or I can work to just do better. Yeah, I've come to realize that uh, God's blessed her now with a really extraordinary marriage. We have, we have seven healthy kids and an ever-expanding army of people. Not everybody gets that. It's a lot not to really stop. Just to really, just hard stop sometime and say thank you. You can just you can not think about it. The measure of health you have, whatever it is, it's more than what it could be. It's more than some people have. We get to come to church. We, we get to come here. It's no harassment. It's not difficult. I mean, if the price of gas is a deterrent for some or the heat or whatever else, I don't say, but it's, it's just, it's something we can take for granted. We can dismiss. I'll miss this one. I'll, I'll skip out on that one. The paycheck we get, to honor God with a tenth of it, yeah, we're going to look back one day and think, why did I withhold so much tithe? Why, why did I treat the one who was pierced for me so poorly? Why did I, why did I not... I mean, if you ever get a vision for this stuff, you, you don't have any different response than they did, and that's to fall on your face and mourn. And then get up and to do better. Do better. Try harder to give a greater effort to serve Him. You know, I think overall I'm pretty fortunate. I don't have a lot of regrets, big regrets. But I can do myself and others a favor by identifying those things that I might take for granted and uh, try to live more respectfully in light of what God has given me and given you. I, I think if we could just get a vision for this today, you know, God's involved in our life. It's all going to work out. It's going to be okay. And let's honor the one who makes it that way, both today and in eternity.